Volume 1, Chapter 1 of Diana Tempest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. Volume 1, Chapter 1. La Pierre des Misalliances et celle du Coeur. Colonel Tempest and his miniature ten-year-old replica of himself had made themselves as comfortable as circumstances would permit in opposite corners of the smoking carriage. It was a chilly morning in April, and the boy had wrapped himself in his travelling rug and turned up his little collar and drawn his soft little travelling cap over his eyes in exact, though unconscious, imitation of his father. Colonel Tempest looked at him now and then with paternal complacency. It is certainly a satisfaction to see ourselves repeated in our children. We feel that the type will not be lost. Each new edition of ourselves lessens a natural fear lest a work of value and importance should lapse out of print. Colonel Tempest, at forty, was still very handsome, and must, as a young man, have possessed great beauty before the character had had time to assert itself in the face, before selfishness had learned to look out of the clear grey eyes and a weak self-indulgence and irresolution had loosened the well-cut lips. Colonel Tempest, as a rule, took life very easily. If he had fits of uncontrolled passion now and then, they were quickly over. If his feelings were touched, that was quickly over too. But to-day his face was clouded. He had tried the usual antidotes for an impending attack of what he would have called the blues, by which he meant any species of reflection calculated to give him that passing annoyance which was the deepest form of emotion of which he was capable. But Punch, and the Sporting Times, and even the comic French paper which Archie might not look at, were powerless to distract him to-day. At last he tossed the latter out of the window, to corrupt the morals of trespassers on the line, and as it was, after all, less trouble to yield than to resist, settled himself in his corner, and gave way to a series of gloomy and anxious reflections. He was bent on a mission of importance to his old home, to see his brother, who was dying. His mind always recoiled instinctively from the thought of death, and turned quickly to something else. It was fourteen years since he had been at Overley, fourteen years since that event had taken place which had left a deadly enmity of silence and estrangement between his brother and himself ever since. And it had all been about a woman. It seemed extraordinary to Colonel Tempest, as he looked back, that a quarrel which had led to such serious consequences, which had, as he remembered, spoiled his own life, should have come from so slight a cause. It was like losing the sight of an eye because a fly had committed trespass in it. A man's mental rank may generally be determined by his estimate of woman. If he stands low, he considers her, heaven help her, such as one as himself. If he climbs high, he takes his ideal of her along with him, and, to keep it safe, places it above himself. Colonel Tempest pursued the reflections suggested by an untaxed intellect of average calibre, which he believed to be profound. A mere girl! How men threw up everything for women! What fools men were when they were young! After all, when he came to think of it, there had been some excuse for him there generally was. How beautiful she had been with her pale, exquisite face, and her innocent eyes, 
and a certain shy dignity and pride of bearing peculiar to herself. Yes, any other man would have done the same in his place. The latter argument had had great weight with Colonel Tempest through life. He could not help it if she were engaged to his brother. It was much her fault as his own if they fell in love with each other. She was seventeen, and he was seven-and-twenty, but it is always the woman who has the greater sin. He remembered, with something like complacency, the violent love-making of the fortnight that followed, her shy adoration of her beautiful, eager lover. Then came the scruples, the flight, the white cottage by the Thames, the marriage at the local registry office. What a fool he had been, he reflected, and how he had worshipped her at first, before he had been disappointed in her. Disappointed in her, as the boy is in the butterfly when he has it safe and crushed in his hand. She might have made anything of him, he reflected, but somehow there had been a hitch in her character. She had not taken him the right way. She had been unable to effect a radical change in him, to convert weakness and irresolution into strength and decision, and he had been quite ready to have anything of that sort done for him. During all those early weeks of married life, until she caught a heavy cold on her chest, he believed existence had been easily and delightfully transformed for him. He was susceptible. His feelings were always easily touched. Everything influenced him for a time, beautiful music, or a pathetic story for half an hour, his young wife for nearly six months. A play usually ends with the wedding, but there is generally an afterpiece, ignored by lovers but expected by an experienced audience. The afterpiece in Colonel Tempest's domestic drama began with tears, caused, I believe, in the first instance, by a difference of opinion as to who was responsible for the earwigs in his bath-sponge. In the white cottage there were many earwigs, but even after the earwig difficulty was settled by a move to London, other occasions seemed to crop up for the shedding of those tears which are known to be the common resource of women for obtaining their own way when other means fail and others, many others, suggested by youth and inexperience and a devoted love, had failed. If they are silent tears, or worse still, if the eyelids betray that they have been shed in secret, a man may with reason become much annoyed at what looks like a tacit reproach. Colonel Tempest became annoyed. It is the good fortune of shallow men so thoroughly to understand women that they can see through even the noblest of them though, of course, that deeper insight into the hypocrisy practised by the whole sex about their fancied ailments and inconveniently wounded feelings for their own petty objects is reserved for selfish men alone. Matters have become very wrong indeed, when a caress is not enough to set all right at once. But things came to that shocking pass between Colonel and Mrs. Tempest, and went, in the course of the next few years, several steps further still, till they reached, on her part, that dreary, dead level of emaciated semi-maternal tenderness, which is the only feeling some husbands allow their wives to entertain permanently for them, the only kind of love which some men believe a virtuous woman is capable of. How he had suffered, he reflected, he who needed love so much. Even the advent of the child had only drawn them together for a time. He remembered how deeply touched he had been when it was first laid in his arms, how drawn towards its mother. 
but his smoking-room fire had been neglected during the following week, and he could not find any large envelopes, and the nurse made absurd restrictions about his seeing his wife at his own hours, and Di herself was feeble and languid, and made no attempt to enter into his feelings, or show him any sympathy, and... Colonel Tempest sighed, as he made this mournful retrospect of his married life. He had never cared to be much at home, he reflected. His home had not been made very pleasant to him. The poor, meagre home in a dingy street, the wrong side of Oxford Street, which was all that a young man in the guards, with expensive tastes, who quarrelled with his elder brother, could afford. The last evening he had spent in that house came back to him with a feeling of bitter resentment at the recollection of his wife's unreasonable distress when a tradesman called after dinner for payment of a long-standing account, which she had understood was settled. It was not a large bill, he remembered wrathfully, and he had intended to keep his promise of paying it directly his money came in. But when it came, he had needed it, and more, or his share of the spring fishing he had taken cheap with a friend. Naturally he would not see the man whose loud voice, asking repeatedly for him, could be heard in the hall, and who refused to go away. Colonel Tempest had a dislike to rouse with tradespeople. At last his wife, prostrate and in feeble health, rose languidly from her sofa, and went down to meet the recriminations of the unfortunate tradesman, who, after a long interval, retired, slamming the door. Colonel Tempest heard her slow step come up the stair again, and then, instead of stopping at the drawing-room door, it had gone toiling upwards to the room above. He was incensed by so distinct an evidence of temper. Surely, he said to himself with exasperation, she knew when she married him that she was marrying a poor man. She did not return, and at last he blew out the lamp, and lighting the candle put ready for him, went upstairs, and opening the door of his wife's room, peered in. She was sitting in the dark by the black fireplace, with her head in her hands. A great deal of darkness and cold seemed to have been compressed into that little room. She raised her head as he came in. Her wide eyes had a look in them of a dumb, unreasoning animal distress which took him aback. There was no pride nor anger in her face. In his ignorance he supposed she would reproach him. He had not yet realised that the day of reproaches and appeals, very bitter while it lasted, was long past, years past. The silence of those who have loved us is sometimes eloquent as a tombstone of that which has been buried beneath it. The room was very cold. A faint smell of warm India rubber and a molehill in the middle of the bed showed that a hot bottle was found more economical than coal. "'Why on earth don't you have a fire?' he asked, still standing in the doorway, personally aggrieved at her economies. Di's economies had often been the subject of sore annoyance to him. An anxious housekeeper in her teens sometimes retrenches in the wrong place, namely where it is unpalatable to the husband. Di had cured herself of this fault of late years, but it cropped up now and again, especially when he returned home unexpectedly, as to-day, and found only mutton chops for dinner. "'It was the coal-bill that the man came about this evening,' she said, apathetically, and then the peculiar distressed look giving place to a more human expression, as she suddenly became aware of the reproach her words implied. She added quickly, "'But I'm not in the least cold, thanks.' Still he lingered, 
a sense of ill-usage generally needs expression. "'Why did you not come back to the drawing-room again?' There was no answer. "'I must say you have a knack of making a man's home uncommonly pleasant for him.' Still no answer. Perhaps there was none left. One may come to an end of answers sometimes, like other things, money, for instance. "'Is my breakfast order for half-past seven, sharp?' "'Yes. Poached eggs?' "'Yes, and stewed kidneys. I hope they would be right this time. And I've told Martha to call you at seven punctually. All right. Good night. Good night.' That had been their parting in this world, Colonel Tempest remembered bitterly, for he had been too much hurried next morning to run up to say good-bye before starting for Scotland. Those had been the last words his wife had spoken to him, the woman for whom he had given up his liberty. So much for women's love and tenderness. And as the train went heavily on its way, he recalled, in spite of himself, the last homecoming after that month's fishing, and the fog that he shot into as he neared King's Cross on that dull April morning six years ago. He remembered his arrival at the house, and letting himself in and going upstairs. The house seemed strangely quiet. In the drawing-room a woman was sitting motionless in the gaslight. She looked up as he came in, and he recognised the drawn, haggard face of Mrs. Courtney, his wife's mother, whom he had never seen in his house before, and who now spoke to him for the first time since her daughter's marriage. "'Is that you?' she said quietly, her face twitching. "'I did not know where you were. "'You have a daughter, Colonel Tempest, of a few hours old.' He raised his eyebrows. "'And I?' he asked. "'Pretty comfortable?' The question was a concession to custom on Colonel Tempest's part, for, like others of his enlightened views, he was of course aware that the pains of childbirth are as nothing compared to the twinge of gout in the masculine toe. "'Diana,' said the older woman, with concentrated passion, as she passed him to leave the room. "'Diana, thank God, is dead.' He had never forgiven Mrs. Courtney for that speech. He remembered even now, with a shudder of acute self-pity, all he had gone through during the days that followed, and the silent reproach of the face that even in death wore a look not of rest, but of a weariness stern and patient, and a courage that has looked to the end, and can wait. And when Mrs. Courtney had written to offer to take the little Diana off his hands altogether, provided he would lay no claim to her later on, he had refused with indignation. He would not be parted from his children. But the child was delicate and wailed perpetually, and he wanted to get rid of the house and of all that reminded him of a past that it was distinctly uncomfortable to recall. He put the little yellow-haired boy to school, and when Mrs. Courtney repeated her offer, he accepted it, and Di, with her bassinet and the minute feather-stitched wardrobe that her mother had made for her, packed inside her little tin bath, drove away one day in a four-wheeler straight out of Colonel Tempest's existence, and very soon out of his memory. His marriage had been the ruin of him, he said to himself, reviewing the last few years. It had done for him with his brother. He had been a fool to sacrifice so much for a pretty face, and she had not a shilling. He had chucked away all his chances in marrying her. He might have married anybody but he had never seen a woman before or since with a turn of the neck and shoulder to equal hers. 
Poor Di. She'd spoiled his life, no doubt. But she had had her good points, after all. Poor Di. Perhaps she, too, had had her dark hours. Perhaps she had given love to a man capable only of a passing passion. Perhaps she had sold her woman's birthright for red pottage, and had borne the penalty, not with an exceeding bitter cry, but in an exceeding bitter silence. Perhaps she had struggled against the disillusion and desecration of life, the despair and the self-loathing that go to make up an unhappy marriage. Perhaps in the deepening shadows of death she had heard her new-born child cry to her through the darkness, and had yearned over it, and yet, and yet had been glad to go. However these things may have been, at any rate she had a turn of the neck and shoulder which lived in her husband's memory. Poor Di! Colonel Tempest shook himself free from a train of reflections which had led him to a deathbed, and suddenly remembered with a shudder of repugnance that he is on his way to another at this moment. His brother had not sent for him. Colonel Tempest was hazarding an unsolicited visit. He had announced his intention of coming, but he had received no permission to do so. Nevertheless, he had actually screwed up his weak and vacillating nature to the sticking point of putting himself and his son into the train when the morning arrived that he fixed on for going to Overley. "'For the sake of the old name, and for the sake of the boy,' he said to himself, looking at the delicate, regular profile silhouetted against the window-pane. If Archie had had a pair of wings folded underneath his little greatcoat, he would have made a perfect model for an angel, with his fair hair and face, and the sweet, serious eyes that contemplated, without any change of expression, his choir-book at chapel, all the last grappling contortions of a cockroach, ingeniously transfixed to the book-legged with a pin, to relieve the monotony of the sermon. Overly, 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 called out a porter as the train stopped. Colonel Stempis started. There already? How long was it since he'd got out at that station? There was a new station-master, and the station itself had been altered. He looked at the little red tin shelter erected on the off-side with an alien eye. It had not been there in his time. There was no carriage to meet him, although he had mentioned the train by which he intended to arrive. His heart sank a little as he took Archie by the hand and set out to walk. The distance was nothing, for the station had been made specially for the convenience of the Tempests, and lay within a few hundred yards of the castle gates. But the omen was a bad one. Would his mission fail? How unchanged everything was! He seemed to remember every stone upon the road. There was a turn up to the village, and the low tower of the church peering through the haze of the April trees. They passed through the old Italian gates. There was a new woman at the lodge to open them, and entered the park. Archie drew in his breath. He had never seen deer at large before. He supposed his uncle must keep a private zoological gardens on a large scale, and his awe of him increased. "'Are the lions and the tigers loose, too?' he inquired, with grave interest, but without anxiety, as his eyes followed a little band of fallow deer skipping across the turf. "'There are no lions and tigers, Archie,' said his father, tightening his clasp on the little hand. If Colonel Tempest had ever loved anything, it was his son. They had come to a turn in the broad white road, which he knew well. He stopped and looked. High on a rocky crag, looking out over its hanging woods and gardens, 
the old grey castle stood, its long walls and solemn towers outlined against the sky. The flag was flying. "'He's still alive,' said Colonel Tempest, remembering a certain homecoming long ago, when, as he galloped up the steep winding drive, even as he rode, the flag dropped half-mast high before his eyes, and he knew his father was dead. They had reached the ascent to the castle, and Colonel Tempest turned from the broad road, and struck into a little path that clambered upwards towards the gardens through the hanging woods. It was a short cut to the house. It was here he had first seen Diana, and he pondered over the fidelity of mind which, after fourteen years, could remember the exact spot. There was the wooden bridge over the stream where she had stood, her white gown reflected in the water below her, the heart of the summer woods enfolding her like the setting of a jewel. The syringa and the laburnum were out. The air was faint with perfume. She stood looking at him with lovely, surprised eyes in her exceeding youth and beauty. Involuntarily his mind turned from that first meeting to the last parting seven years later. The cold, dark London bedroom, the bowed figure in the low chair, the fatigued smell of tepid india-rubber. What a gulf between the radiant young girl and the woman with the white exhausted face! Alas! for the many parts of a woman may have to play in her time to one and the same man. Colonel Tempest laughed harshly to himself, and his powerful mind reverted to the old refrain, What fools men are to marry! It had been summer when he had seen her first, but now it was early spring. The woods were very silent. God was making a special revelation in their heart, was turning over one more page of his New Testament. He had walked once again in his garden, and at the touch of his feet all young sheaths and spears of growing things were stirring and pressing up to do his will. The larch had hastened to hang out his pink tassels. The primroses had been the first among the flowers to receive the divine message, and were repeating it already in their own language to those that had ears to hear it. The folded buds of the anemones had heard the wishwood emphephtha, and were opening one after another their pure, shy eyes. The arched neck of the young bracken was showing among the brown ancestors of last year. The marsh marigolds thronged the water's edge. Every battered dyke and rocky scar was transfigured. God was once again making all things new. Only a mole, high on its funeral twig, held out tiny human hands, worn with honest toil, to its maker, in mute protest against a steel death that nature never made for little agriculturalists. Death was still in the world, apparently, side by side with the resurrection of the flowers. Archie paused to glance contemptuously and shy a stick of the corpse as he passed. It looked as if it had not afforded much sport before it died. Colonel Tempest puffed a little, for the ascent was steep, and he was not so slim as he had once been. He sat down on a circular wooden seat round a yew-tree by the path. He began to dislike the idea of going on, and perhaps after all he would be told by the servants that his brother would not see him. Jack was quite capable of making himself disagreeable to the last. Really, on the whole, perhaps the best course would be to go down the hill again. It is always so much easier to go down than to go up, 
so much pleasanter at the moment to avoid what may be distasteful to a sensitive mind. "'Archie,' said Colonel Tempest. The boy did not hear him. He was looking intently at a little patch of ground near the garden seat, which had evidently been carefully laid out by a landscape gardener of about his own age. Every hair of grass or weed had been scratched up within the irregular wall of fir cones that bounded the enclosure. Grey sand, imported from a distance, possibly from the brook, marked winding paths therein in course of completion. A sunk bucket with a squirt in it indicated an intention, as yet unmatured, to add a fountain to the natural beauties of the site. "'You go in this way, father,' said Archie, grasping the situation with becoming gravity, and pointing out the two oyster-shells that flanked the main entrance. "'Then you walk round the lake. Look, he's got a duck ready. Oh, dear, and see, father, here is his name. I would have done it all in white stones if it had been me. J-O-H-N. John. Father, who is John?' Colonel Tempest's temper was like a curate's gun. You could never tell when it might not go off or in what direction. It went off now, with an explosion. It had been a full cock all the morning. "'Who is John?' he repeated, fiercely kicking the letters on the ground to right and left. "'You may well ask that. John is a confounded interloper. He has no right here. Damn John!' Archie was following the parental boot with anxious eyes. The tin duck was dinted in on one side, and bulged out on the other in a manner painful to behold. It would certainly never swim again. The turn of the squirt might come any moment. But when his father began to say, Dan, Archie had always found it better not to interfere. "'Come along, Archie,' said Colonel Tempest furiously. "'Don't stand fooling there!' And he began to mount the path with redoubled energy. All thought of turning back was forgotten. Archie looked back ruefully at the devastated pleasure-grounds. The fur-cone boundary was knocked over at one corner. All privacy was lost. Anything might get in now, and the duck, if she recovered, could get out. It was much to be regretted. "'Poor damn John,' said Archie, slipping his hand into that of the grown-up child whom he had for a father. "'Poor John,' echoed Colonel Tempest, his temper evaporating a little. "'Only wish it were poor John, and not poor Archie. That was your garden, Archie, do you hear, my boy? Yours, not his.' "'and you shall have it, too, if I can get it for you.' "'I don't want it now,' said Archie gravely. "'You spoilt it.' End of Volume 1, Chapter 1